if you have children or if you remember when you were a child, there's something that you teach your children or that you don't have to teach your kids. There's something that every one of us, in a sense, are kind of born with that just comes out seemingly natural. You watch the little kids line up because let's say the teacher is going to give them some candy and oftentimes they crowd in and one of the first things they say is this, me first. Me first. I want to go first. Nobody teaches their kid to say that. And yet we seem to naturally say it. Me first. And we try to teach our kids not to be selfish, right? To, to say, let, let someone else go first. But it's in all of us. It, it doesn't go away. Even as we get older. The, the only thing about being older is, as, as children is we don't say me first. We just hide it, right? Uh, even as adults, it's not like we, we became selfless because we were immature. No, we're, we're still the same. We just learn to hide it. it it's part of us. We, we can't get rid of this sense of, well, I need to think about me first. It, it doesn't just get, you know, removed. It, it's, it's part of who we are. And the only way to understand how to get that out of our life, according to the Bible, is what the Bible calls repentance and faith. How do you become a Christian? You become a Christian through repentance and faith. Now, let me just do it quickly. What does that mean? <clears throat> Repentance is simply this. It's admitting that your whole life is permeated with self-centeredness. When you think about repentance, or when you hear about saying, I need to repent, oftentimes you think, oh, that just means you got to admit you did something bad. Look, everybody admits they did something bad. Everybody says, you know, I, I did it pretty bad. It doesn't change your life. It doesn't necessarily connect you to God. But repentance ultimately, I think, at its core is recognizing that there is a self-righteousness, there is a selfishness, there is a me-first kind of mentality that permeates everything I do, not just in the bad things I do, but even the good things that I do, oftentimes selfishly motivated. Christianity and being a Christian starts by saying, my issue is me. My issue is me first. And repentance says, I need salvation. Now, when you have faith, this is, what, this is what happens next. Faith, you trust in someone else to help you with this, and you trust in this person, Jesus Christ, who is the selfless one, right? Who gave himself up for me, who loves me forever, even as I am, even though he knows I'm ultimately selfish. But if you understand... If you really understand, if you really picture who Jesus is, if you really could see him dying on a cross for your wickedness, your sin, and your selfishness, that shouldn't just make you ashamed of your own selfishness. It makes your selfishness unnecessary. Unnecessary. Because you're humbled. You know you have struggles, but at the same time, when you look at the cross, you're affirmed and you're loved. And that, if you understand this very well, it puts your self-centeredness, your selfishness in check. When you become a Christian, there is a grace that comes into your heart that gives a, a, a blow to your own self-centeredness. And if you understand the gospel, it changes your psychology. It ought to change the way that you relate to people. It changes how you are at work. It changes how you respond to the poor. 
It, it, it affects the way you forgive. It blows away your ego. The way you work, the way you relate to people with other backgrounds, and the way you live in your culture. And I need to just get that out of the way because what I'm doing here as I look at this passage, and this is the last time we'll look at it as we move forward and move on from here, is that I'm just painting broad strokes into trying to give us a paradigm in how we engage with not just Christians and the church, but with, with the people that we work with, with the people that we sometimes live with, with the people that we engage with outside the church, with the, with the culture and the, and the thinking and the narrative of the world that, that seems to be like confusing and maybe you're trying to figure out what, what, what should I think about certain things? How do I respond as a Christian? I'm, just, I'm not here to answer every particular situation because I don't think I can. But I think what I'm doing here is that we're painting a picture in the way we engage with the differences, the way we engage with opposition, the, the way we engage with, with different thought and different thinking makes a huge difference in how that works out. And it's not simple as it might seem. And so when you look at this passage here, what we said last time, two weeks ago, is this. If you remember this, uh, Israel here is now in Babylon. They're in captivity. And here in verses 5 to verse 7, God tells them how to live. All right, you're in a foreign land. You've got this foreign king, right? Um, there's a foreign government, and now you're living in this place. Here's how you should live. Build houses, you know, live in them, plant gardens, you know, have families, get married. Basically do life. And then in verse 7 he says, Seek the welfare of that city where I've sent you into exile. Pray for the city that you live in, the people around you. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. In other words, I think what God is telling these people is that there is a sense of, even as Christians who are in a foreign place, a concern for what goes on around them. And it was very different from uh, how it was before, right? I mean, we said this a couple weeks ago. I mean, in Exodus, when they were in a foreign land, right, where there were foreigners everywhere, what was the command? How did God tell them to live in Canaan? God said, get rid of the foreigners, right? Get rid of the idolatry. Um, remove the pagans. Remove their ruling authorities. Get your own king. Get the Bible or get the word of God there and, and govern it for me. And then you come to, to Jeremiah and it's completely the opposite. Just build houses. Have family, do life, and pray for the welfare of the people around you. And if you remember what we said two weeks ago, what was the difference? The difference was not in the people. There were followers of God in either place, Canaan or, or in Babylon. But the difference was in the place. And what Israel was learning, that in Babylon, it was not their final home. It could never be their, their promised land. And what they had to learn and live there was that their identity had changed. They were exiles. They were to make home in a place that was ultimately not going to be their final home. They were home away from home. And so when verse 11 says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, evil to give you a future and a hope. That's the promise that God is making to his people. That yes, right now you are in exile, but one day I will bring you back home to where you ought to be with me. Okay? 
Now, this is all to say simply, it just means this. You and I, as people of faith, were made for something better. Something more. You ever wonder why, like, no matter what job you have, no matter what relationship you're in, you, you know, you ever think about, like, there's got to be something more to life than this. You ever have that feeling? There needs to be something more. It's built into us, this sort of dissatisfaction, even when things are going well. And what I think he's trying to tell us is this. As the people of God, you are always destined for something more. Destined comes from the word destination. You're destined because your destination is not just ultimately found here in this world. And this is why I think we struggle because we are so busy trying to build our heaven or our kingdom right here on earth, where we live, where we work, where we play, as if this is it. And we try to make it last as long as we can, only to brutally realize sometimes that nothing just lasts. That there is good things in the world, that we, God gives us good in, in this world right now. But there were temporary things that were made to create gratitude in our hearts and, and, and say, you know, God, I, I look forward to more, what you have for me, more permanent good. But we idolize the good in this world. The thing that God gives us, we say, this is what I live for. And we say things like, hey, you know, as long as I get married... I'll be good. No. Talk to anyone who got married. If I could get this job, this is it. I'll be good. No. Maybe for a little bit. If I could get into this school, I'm set. I'll be good. Not, not even close. If my kids would just be healthy, everything's fine. See, the problem in this world is this. Even if you got the good that you wanted, for some reason, nothing good ever really stays that good. And nothing good seems to be ever good enough. But what do you do when it's not good? How do you know you've idolized the good? This is how you know. When what you want to be good becomes not good, or even worse, bad. This is the end of my life. And you feel that, and it's hard, and it's really hard. But your life crumbles. And the question you've got to ask is this, did I idolize the good? Because is it really true? Jeremiah chapter 29, this is what, he's, I have plans for you. For your welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. You're a people of destiny. And so I think the call is we need to live like it, where we are right now. Now, here's the thing. Let's be honest. As Christians, even for myself, I know many of us working and playing and living in the world outside, we, we don't always uh, see that or, or feel that about ourselves, right? right? I'm a person of destiny, right? I have something coming for me and one day and it's going to be all great. You know, I, you know Monday through Saturday, I, I, you know, even on Sunday, I, I sometimes... I don't feel that about myself. Outside of a deeper conversation, most of us not, might not feel that much different from the rest of the world in the way we work, in the way we play, the way we live, even in our current culture. You know, my, uh, my wife was supposed to read scripture, but she's not here today because, you know, we sent our kids away to school, and, um, you know, it's, it's a big transition for us. 
but I think, you know, she's having a hard time. You know, mom's not feeling well. And so anytime anyone asks her, like, how's your kids doing, she starts crying. And so, you know, it, it's like, um, you know, I, I cry too, but, you know, somebody needs to be stronger. So, you know, I, I think, I, you know, I try. But anyways, um, she has an accent when she speaks English. Did you know? I used to make fun of her all the time. You know, like, she'd ask me, how do you pronounce this word, B-O-O-T? Oh, that's, you know, that's boot. Well, then how do you pronounce B-O-O-K? And I said, well, that's book. <laughs> right? I said, too, let's go read some books, you know. <laughs> but, but, you know, she hates it when I do that, you know, because I'm only misleading her. But it's, it's making fun of her accent. But, you know, her English is perfectly fine. It just she speaks with an accent. And by the accent, you can tell oftentimes where you're really from. And even though sometimes I think as Christians, we, we don't always feel different from the people around us. We don't always look different and don't always do things differently from everyone around us. Even if that's the case, I, I still believe as people who are exiles, as people who are destined for more, people who belong to God himself, there ought to be an accent. There ought to be some kind of Christian accent, some, some, some way in the, in the way we speak or, or the, the way we work, the way we play, the, maybe even the way we live. Ever so slight accent just to kind of remind ourselves and others that we come from another home. That our spiritual identity is not around here. We are people who have one foot here in this world, but the Bible says you've also got one foot in the next. And so as people like this, how do we engage with our current culture and, and the world around us and the situations and the thinking and the controversies and the ideas uh, that can be so different or even at odds with, with some of the gospel culture that we, we, many of us grew up with? And it's not a simple question, you know, for the few Canadians that we have in our church, you know the dilemma, right? You have dual citizenship. If I ask you the question, if Canada and U.S. went to the war, who would you fight for? Right? And the answer is sometimes not always easy. One guy says, I'll be, in, I'll, I'll be fighting for Canada. Another one says, I'll be fighting for U.S. You, you have dual citizenship. It's, the answer is not so clear, is it? And so as people of Christ who have dual citizenship, we, we belong to the kingdom of God, yet we live here in this world, we are exiles in a certain way. How do we navigate some of these things? I'm going to give you three things to think about, uh, three ways or three, I think, approaches that we need to think about, dichotomies. I'll give you three dichotomies. A dichotomy is when you compare and contrast two things, right? The first is, is it, do we withdraw or do we assimilate? The second is, are we conservative or are we liberal? And the third is, is there an attractiveness or is there an animosity? Let me explain one of those things. Three things, okay? With regards to the world outside and how we engage with it, withdrawing or, simul or simulating. Two extremes to avoid. Those are two extremes, withdraw or simulate. And... Um, the, the first is of that is this. When we withdraw, it basically means we pull out, we withdraw. But there are two ways you can withdraw. One is join a monastery. 
The world is evil. Everything's bad. Their thinking is bad. I'm going to move to like some place in, you know, some farm in the middle of the country and just live my own life and create my own society. Join a monastery. Be a monk. Okay, that, that's the obvious way. But though oftentimes if we withdraw, this is the way I think many of us do it. Maybe you go to church on Sunday. And maybe you might think about God a little bit on Sunday. Right? You might act like a Christian on Sunday. But then Monday through Saturday, you act like everyone else. And you live functionally as if God doesn't exist or that it doesn't matter. So we don't want to withdraw, but there's two ways to do it. One is join a monastery, just remove yourself. But the other is, right, just go to a church, you know, but then kind of act like he doesn't, it doesn't matter. There are two different ways of pulling out, but functionally they are the same with regards to the rest of the world. You're so heavenly, you're no earthly good. It doesn't matter if your faith you think is true or not because with regards to the rest of the world, if you withdraw in either way, your faith is irrelevant. It's irrelevant. Yes, the God we worship, Jesus the King and his kingdom, as we said two weeks ago, is not of this world. But he is also the Lord. And as the Lord, he cares about what goes on even now, right now here in this world. And we live in this world. We're part of it. That's important. We're not some Eastern religion that says that, you know, all the things that are happening around the world, it doesn't matter. It's illusion. It's an illusion or it's inconsequential. What we do here is important. It's really important. Things matter what we do here. Politics is important, even though I don't like politics. Art is important, even though I'm not very much of an artist. Justice, not later, but here and now, it, it, it's, it should matter to us today. It matters to a God today who is sovereign over all. And so we don't want to uh, withdraw from our society or culture. Either way, we, we want to engage. So if the first extreme is we want to avoid, that we want to avoid is to withdraw, then the second extreme we want to avoid is this. It's the opposite, completely assimilate. You don't want to withdraw, but you don't want to completely assimilate. Um, the best way I can illustrate it is this way. I know we have some kids here, but let me just talk about this. One thing that everyone, if you've been going to church, you already know, but no one ever really talks about it anymore, and that is this. You can't have sex before marriage. Let's, let's leave another word. Um, you can't have premarital relationships before marriage. This is, that, that's a common thing, right? And every time I've done premarital counseling of anyone, right, the same thing always happens. Why do people do it anyway then? Especially if you're saying you're a Christian for so long, why? And then the response is always something like this. Because no one does that anymore. No one thinks like that anymore. It's not practical. Everyone does it. Let me tell you something. Consensus does not create ethics. Consensus doesn't make things right or wrong. As long as two adults are consenting, well, then it doesn't matter. As long as both of them feel happy and they feel fulfilled. And it may be the popular thinking of our country today or our culture today, but it doesn't necessarily make it right. And the question, if you really think about it, and not to judge anyone, but to just kind of think about it, the basic question, who then gets to call the shots? Who or what ultimately determines what's right or wrong? 
What system of ethics, what, what authority, what society, what, what culture, what religion, what people get to make that call? And the question you should ask is why? But more often than not, we don't think that deep. We don't think that far. All we think is, hey, no one does this anymore. Everyone does this. And so it's not, it doesn't make any sense. No one lives like that, duh. And I could have picked any issue. I could have picked any issue that we could talk about. You know, this is just an obvious one. But, it, but even if Christians are also saying this, doing everything everyone else does, thinking like everyone else does, buying into the narratives even of our current culture, at the same time not really thinking through the question why, then what happens is we lose our distinctiveness. There, there's no difference. And, and somehow just saying, well, I still go to church. Well, good for you, but so what? We've lost our saltiness, as Jesus might say. And as people of faith, Really, if that's how we assimilate, we've got nothing to offer. We've got nothing to say to the world that the world isn't already saying. Okay? So we don't withdraw, but we don't want to assimilate. So how do we engage? And this is the way. We are to be fully involved with the world outside. Fully involved. But at the same time, a little detached. A little distinct. I mean, we can identify with some of the current thinking. We can relate with this, you know, and the why we would think like the why we would do this, right? And we can relate with the struggles of our culture, and yet at the same time, still remember that our identity comes ultimately from something greater. You know, I'll give you a perfect example. I don't know if anyone voted for Trump here. I'm sure somebody did. Um, but there was a period where, you know, if I ever meet a Christian who voted for Trump, I'm going to punch him in the face. What? It doesn't make any sense. Why would you vote for a guy like that? Well, who did you vote for, fans? Well, that's none of your business. But I voted for Biden. And the Christian comes to me and says, well, how could you vote for Biden? Do you know how liberal that guy is? Do you know what's going to happen if you get him into office? You know how the churches need to change? And so I get into an argument. Well, you're so stupid. You know, how can you, you know, no, you're stupid. You know, you're just ignorant. You know, and, and it doesn't matter who's right or who's wrong. The, the whole argument is just ugly. You know, I try to share a gospel with someone who's not a Christian, and they respond this way. You're dumb for believing in God. Don't you know it's a crutch? Don't you know it's so outdated and, and you just you know, need something to lean on and explain the suffering in the world? And you're so stupid and ignorant. How could you think like that? And now my response is, I'm sorry. Okay. Before I wanted to punch him in the face. Now it's, you know, God doesn't need me to defend him. I'm fully involved, but I, at the same time, I don't need to be personally attached, right? And that's an idea. That's, a, that's one possible way to think about it, okay? Now, some of us might be thinking here is this. Well, you know, Pastor Francis, everything is cultural, right? Everything. And Christianity is cultural, isn't it? So how do we know if we're living out 
real faith in a real God and not just a cultural religion or one that kind of fits in with our own current culture. And the, and the answer is, you know, you're, you're right. There are cultural elements in the Bible. And there are cultural elements, you know, in Christianity. Certainly, I mean, Jesus was Jewish, right? He came from an ancient Near East, Middle Eastern kind of culture. Um, but here's the thing about culture, okay? Culture changes. It's fluid. And one of the ways to answer your question, uh, maybe one way to know if you're really and genuinely following a, a, a genuine belief is this. Here's the question. Is there anything that under any circumstance for you as a Christian, always wrong? Culture is going to change. But is there anything under any circumstance always wrong? Do you have any rooted conviction, regardless of the winds and the tides of culture, your feelings or the conditions, any conviction that you say as a believer that will never change? Is there anything inside you that you always say it's there? That's a non-negotiable, no matter what people may think about you, what the feelings are, it's a given, it's a root, it's a commitment. What are the non-negotiables for you? And where did you get them? And this is where we talk about, you know, the, 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 the second thing here, conservative versus liberal. What are the non-negotiables? Where did I get them? Well... Here's this. You know, I used to work, serve in a big Korean church. And my senior pastor, he loved me and he hated me at the same time. Um, you know, because he'd always told me to go to morning prayer. Now, if you don't know what morning prayer is, um, the Korean church always had a practice of waking up at 5 or 6 a.m., go to church and pray. Right? Every day. And I would be the guy who would never go. Right? So the senior pastor always told me, you got to go. I would never go. And then, you know, the, the accusation was, if you don't go to morning prayer, you're not a Christian. And I'll be like, really? Right? Is that what it means? And I think till this day, some of us might even feel like that. That if you grew up in that kind of church, going to morning prayer, all of a sudden you stop, you feel a little guilty. Okay? But where did that come from? Right? Where do we get that non-negotiable for some people? And I answer this question. Here, let me, let me try to tell you this. I hate the label conservative or liberal. I don't, I don't want to fit into conservative or liberal. Because what we do is we say, you're a conservative. And immediately we put them in this camp. You're a liberal. And so then you put them in that camp. And it becomes me versus them. I, I don't think it's that simple. Right? For example, let me tell you. If I like singing hymns. And I appreciate some traditional forms of worship. And I think premarital sex is wrong. And still believe that the Bible really is God's word, inerrant and infallible. Am I conservative or am I liberal? Well, you might say, I'm conservative, whatever that means to you. But what if I said to you at the same time, I like smoking. I appreciate people who can drink. And I support gay marriage. And I voted for Joe Biden. Am I conservative or liberal? Well, there you might say, oh, you sound a little liberal there. I don't like conservative or liberal. The problem is with this is this. As one pastor, Scott Saul, says this, I'm too liberal for my conservative friends, but I'm too conservative for my liberal friends. But where did I get these ideas? I'm not trying to be cool and trying to say I don't want to be either. I'm trying to live according to what I see 
is informed by the Bible itself. A gospel culture that is biblically informed. That's where I got my non-negotiables. And it doesn't fit in. Look, if you ever learn something from the Bible and you say, hey, look at me. Look what I know. Look how I am. You can be like this too, right? No one will. No one will want to do that. But if you're really following Jesus, if you're really looking at the word of God and you're listening to his words, right, then the last thing is this. There's going to be animosity and there's going to be attraction. Think about it. Here's Jesus on the cross. When he died on the cross, there are two responses from people around him. People were attracted. They saw great humility. They saw perfect sacrifice, selfless love. And he did it with no whining, no complaining, right? And they were attracted to him. But at the same time, there were people who saw Jesus on the cross and there was animosity. He's an idiot. He's the king. Tell him to get himself down. They mocked him. There was anger and even hatred. Both responses there to the same event. And if you're looking at the Bible and you're looking at the word of God and following Jesus Christ this way, there's going to be the same in your life. There ought to be attraction, but there ought to be animosity as the people around you watch. Think about it. Attraction. Human relationships are always blowing up. Nations are always fighting. People around you are always getting upset. They're always saying, I'm not getting what I want. You upset me. I'm angry. And someone who's followed Jesus Christ, we don't do that all that quickly. We don't go into the workplace or into the friend, friendships or into families uh, with that kind of attitude. We're the ones, if we're following Jesus and we look at the cross, we're the ones who are overlooking things. We're the ones who are supposed to be not so irritable. We're not the ones saying, well, I'm not getting mine. We're supposed to be the salt. And salt is a preservative. It, it keeps relationships going. We don't shoot out angry emails and texts to our fellow coworkers and apologize later. We, we don't do that. In, in society, and the world, uh, we pour ourselves out with justice and good deeds without whining and complaining. And if we're living this way, uh, if we're supposed to live this way, generous, lovingly, Praying to the Lord for the people around us. Because in their welfare, so is yours. Guess what? Some people are going to be attracted. They're going to be attracted. Because you're attracted to your faith. You're for the common good. You care about the good of others. You're not self-centered. You're not, you're not selfish. You're other-centered, right? You're doing what Christ does. But at the same time, there's going to be animosity. Right? If you look at the word of God and you look for non-negotiables, if you look at the gospel of Jesus Christ and you follow Christ, look, when he was on the cross, it hurt. It was painful. And what that means is this. If you follow Jesus Christ, not only will people be attracted to your faith, if you live it out this way, there are people who are going to be unattracted. You're going to get hurt. It's not if, it's, it's when. You know, if you're living like this, you will be hurt. Look, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 14 says this. If you are insulted because of me, you're blessed. Insulted because of Jesus. Right? And the only thing we need to do is we've got to make sure if we're insulted or if we, if we receive animosity, it's because of Jesus. It's because we spoke truth 
but we did it with love and genuine care and humility, not for ourselves, not to be right, but for the other person, and we still receive it, then it's expected because Jesus was countercultural. And unfortunately, there are some Christians today who just go around telling people how to live. You shouldn't do that. You shouldn't be like this. You know, no care for the person, just a sense of morality. And, and now they're hating you. And they say, oh, you're so stupid. And then they're thinking, you know what? I'm being insulted for Jesus. I'm being persecuted. For... No, you're being insulted before being obnoxious. Okay? Not because of Jesus, but because of you. You might be countercultural because you say things a little differently, but you're not in it for their good. You're in it for you. But on the other hand, some of us, we're all in for caring about things around us and people around us, but we're never countercultural at any point. Here's what I'm saying if nothing you believe or do or think as a Christian, ever goes against the grain of everybody else around you, if nobody ever knocks you for your faith, then there's something wrong with your faith. There's something wrong with the way you're following Jesus because he just got killed for saying what he said, doing what he did, and just being him. Or you're a coward. You're afraid to say it because you're afraid of what people are going to think and say. But Do you see this? If you follow the Jesus of the Bible, you're following someone who was born into the world, part of it, and yet not of it. You're following someone who didn't withdraw from the world, but neither did he just assimilate. Someone who at times seemed like a conservative, but then other times seems like a liberal, even heretical, but was only just really obeying the word of God. Someone who was attractive to many by what he did and what he said and how he did them. But at the same time, despised by others for the same things. If you follow this Jesus Christ, you follow in the footsteps of someone who is totally selfless, poured himself out for the common good of everyone. He healed the sick. He fed the hungry. He cared for widows. He never turned down anyone, even though he knew that he was going to get ridiculed. He knew he was going to be rejected and even considered an enemy of the state. And yet he laid down his life for his enemies, and he did it without a peep. Who does that? No one does that anymore. That's just cultural idea. No, it's counter-cultural. It's counter-intuitive to what we do and think. And the kind of Christians that, call, that can cross cultural barriers and navigate the difficulties of our world and differences, the kind of people that can cross class barriers or even relational barriers are the kind that really know what Jesus did for them. They're the kind that see Jesus being selfless for them, and they say, I can do that now. They're the kind of people that see Jesus pouring himself out for people that don't like him, and they say, I can do that now. They're the kind of people who are boldly fierce for the good of all and the salvation of many, and yet humbly countercultural. They're the kind of people who have the knowledge of what Jesus did for them. That when he died on the cross, he blew away any idea of selfishness or self-centeredness and turned it into an otherness or an other-centeredness without fear of rejection or the opinion of men. And it's true. If you want to navigate the world, if you want to live and continue to live in its cultures, 
It's thinking. And there are many different opinions on very important issues. Then we need to know that thinking a little better. We need to know what's going on in the world a little more deeply. But if you want to know how to navigate the world, its cultures, its thinking, and the many different opinions on various important issues, relevant issues, as a Christian, not only do you need to know how the world thinks, but you also need to know a little more of how Jesus thinks. And you need to know a little more of him. I don't have the answers to every simple question. The answers could be different. Same motivations, different conclusions. And not everything is always clear. And that's the difficulty of, of a person living in this world but also belonging to another. The only thing we have is the word of God. But the way that I approach it is that I approach it with the sense that this is not just I just need to be right. This is for the sake of others. Then even the differences... There's a way I approach it where it doesn't respond with anger or hate. And I think we need to understand that as we move forward and look at some of the thinkings of the world and see how different they are and then how we make sense of them today. Let's take a moment to pray.